It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Today, Neil Lennon leaves Celtic. Did he jump or was he pushed? Uh, We'll assess who's in the frame to take over at Paradise. Elsewhere, we look back on the Champions League last 16 first legs as all the English sides win on the continent. After Jill Scott earned her 150th England cap, we've got some international legends for you. And football's fashion faux pas. Yes, we're talking about Pep Guardiola and that coat. Uh, to help me through it all, Tom Roddy, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. Morning, guys. How are you doing? Morning, Morning well, mate. Yeah. Oh, that, that's epic. That, that's, that was in that, unison, wasn't it? That it, felt it like you were a teacher <laughs> at a primary school. That's exactly it. It had absolute first day back at school vibes. I wonder if you guys had picked up on the, the big announcements this week and thought, yeah, we're, we're, we're re-energised. We could be back in the classroom anytime soon. No. Nah. <laughs> 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 Just had a coffee, like Tom. Third coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, listen, it's good to know you're all buzzing to be with me. Um, Lots to talk about today. We're going to start by talking about Celtic. It's a big job. Neil Lennon has left. 18 points adrift of Rangers after defeat against the then bottom side Ross County um, at the weekend. And I've been involved in a massive argument since with a few mates around how big a job Celtic is. We were talking about the candidates and I basically said, well, well, they're a bigger club Celtic than, than the likes of Spurs. To which a lot of my friends thought I was absolutely insane. But I said, hold on a minute. Spurs just built a brand new state-of-the-art stadium, the best in Europe. They still haven't got as many seats as Celtic have had for the last 20 years. So they they are a big club. They've got a huge fan base. It is a massive job for someone going in at the club. I, I don't know what level of manager you guys expect to be there, but certainly we can all agree that it, it would be enticing. Tom, what do you think? Tom Clark. The big club debate in modern football is a strange one for me as I think it's 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 often rooted in very old-fashioned and you know quite old historical victories from down down the years Celtic obviously are a massive club in the sense that they're you know very famous around the world from a big city and things like that but in terms of it being a big club in modern football I'm not sure they are a massive club in terms of modern football on the pitch what they achieve I don't think you can say that and I'm really I I don't want to start off this podcast as I've said you know trying to get along with everyone this season I can see Gregor on our little monitors (laughs) already fuming at me but I don't think you can say that they're a massive draw 
in the sense of Tottenham. <laughs> I don't, I, I, you, you, you can't, can you? you can't, if you were choosing as a manager, to, if you had the choice between going to Celtic or Tottenham, you'd go to Tottenham, I think, for lots of reasons. For in terms of, for the players you get to work with, if nothing else, like I've watched Celtic a few times this season and their playing squad is not the best. I mean, oh, they've I had some great players down look, the look, years. One is in the Scottish Premiership, the other one is in the Premier League. I mean, for that reason, a lot of managers would rather be at Crystal Palace than Celtic. You know, it's just one of those things. You know, there are lots of factors, but it's still a massive club. You can imagine that if Celtic were in the Premier League, never going to happen, no point going down that road. But if they were, they'd be a bigger club than Spurs. That's all I'm trying to say. That's all I'm trying to say, guys. To be fair, you'll you'll have immediately wound up a large uh, cohort of Scottish football fans there, Hugh, because there's like, A, obviously Celtic fans and most Scottish football fans would say Celtic, like, off the bat, straight, easy. Um, And Tom's right, obviously football has changed dramatically in kind of the Premier League era. The Celtic are one of the, well, a, a huge club in kind of European world renowned but the reality of the modern day is if you look in the summer Ivan Tony was someone they were trying to bring to Celtic Park and he chose Brentford that's the reality now for Celtic as pain, you know, as painful as it is for me to say that you look at a player of real promise in England would choose to go to Brentford who look like a well-run upward, upwardly mobile club who might reach the Premier League rather than go to Celtic who at that time could still be played in the Champions League this is the problem and if you're looking at who the manager's going to be if you look back at the appointment of Brendan Rodgers he was so rare in that he was elite level manager he had a bit of a kind of point to prove but he had that connection so the biggest issue for Celtic now is finding anyone anywhere close to that kind of stature and ability as a manager, but but wants to go. Well, there is one other element I'd just like to you know say before Scottish fans start writing to me in their droves for saying what an arsehole I am. But um, it, financially as well, Scottish football isn't in a great position. So when Gregor talks about Ivan Tony, there's every chance, I don't know the intimate details of the deal, but there's every chance Brentford could probably pay him more than what Celtic can or could afford a bigger transfer fee than Celtic. Like the finances at Scottish clubs at the minute aren't great. So that, that, that's another factor that you have to, you know, bring into the debate about big clubs in Scotland. And look, the Celtic job is a huge job for whoever wants it, but it's, we should try and have it in, you know, in isolation of the Scottish game overall, I think. Well, as I said a little bit earlier on, uh, Neil Lennon has gone 18 points adrift Celtic. Um, after defeat to the bottom side, then bottom side, Ross County. In his statement earlier this week, and Neil Lennon said, I've always given my best to the club. I've been proud to deliver silverware to the Celtic supporters. The club will always be part of me. I will always be a Celtic supporter myself, and I will always want the best for Celtic. Where the Celtic chief executive, Peter Law, says Neil has always been and will always be a true Celtic man and someone I will always hold in the highest regard. Personally, it's a sad day for me to see Neil leave He's a man of quality and decency. He is someone who will always be a part of the fabric of Celtic and someone who will always be welcomed. But he did resign. And a little bit earlier on, I spoke to our Scottish football correspondent, Michael Grant, and asked if that was really the case. (laughs) Yeah, well, listen, we're led to believe that it was a resignation. Um, I know that it's easy to be cynical about it, and we all thought that this was one of these ones where you're kind of nicely sacked or, um, uh, you know, you uh, jump before you're pushed sort of thing. But uh, no, no, the, the 
were led to believe that it was a, a resignation by Neil Lennon uh, after several months in which he said he wouldn't walk away from the job. Uh, it appears that that is what he has done. Um, I think the final straw was obviously the defeat at Ross County uh, at the weekend where we saw a lot of the same failings in the team. And uh, I guess from Neil Lennon a sense of helplessness and hopelessness that uh, he was going to be able to turn it round and uh, you know, save anything from this season of uh, complete uh, disaster that, uh, that Celtic have had. His final interview, he did sort of say, he was asked, are you the man to turn things around? He said, absolutely, I want to be the person fighting to change things. The season hasn't gone the way we wanted for several reasons, but he still believed in himself. A couple of days later, he's gone, which is why I asked that question, really. Um, of course, to those looking on, it seemed inevitable for some time that he was not going to be the manager, certainly going into next season. Um, is there any indication why this has taken so long and why the club didn't move first? Well, I, I don't think Neil Lennon was any, in any hurry to leave the job. Um, you know, this is the job that he wanted. And like all managers, they, they, they back themselves to turn it round. And, and, you know, they have that inner self-belief that, that they, their methods will eventually um, work again. So... He was, he was never going to quickly resign from the job. I mean, financially, it's not in his, uh, it's, you know, his incentive is not to, to walk away and um, potentially cost himself compensation and so on. Uh, and also, you know, we, we don't know where Neil Lennon's going to go next in football. It's, it's, it's not going to be a, a job with the stature and uh, resources that he's had at Celtic. So, you know, all of that would have been in Neil Lennon's thinking. From the club's perspective, I think, uh, yes, there was some personal loyalty from Dermot Desmond, Peter Lawwell and the rest of the board towards Neil Lennon. He's a guy they know inside out. He's been part of the club for 20, 21 years. So there was that personal loyalty. There was also maybe a belief from them that he would turn it round. Desmond spoke in August, September time very enthusiastically about Lennon's abilities. And the other thing, Hugh, is I think that uh, they just don't see any alternative candidate out there at that point that 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 made it sensible for them to to uh, replace Lennon there and then and get somebody else in and you could say that that's perhaps still the case because obviously they've got uh, Lennon's gone but they don't have a manager lined up it's John Kennedy as a caretaker for the rest of the uh, the season so um I, I'm not saying that the hunt starts now you know you would imagine that Celtic have been doing work behind the scenes to, to try and uh, suss out who's available and interested for them. But um, I believe that they haven't been able to get anybody in October and November, and that's why the Neil Lennon situation has rumbled on or, or trundled on, really, because the results have been so poor. Well, that was my next question pretty much answered. John Kennedy in interim charge, and, and if we had a picture of who the club might want next... Um, there's a lot of early names being touted um, who we'll dissect in a minute. Is there anyone that you think is a front-runner, though? I don't think there is a front-runner, Hugh. And, and the other thing that's interesting is it's very difficult to gonna get a handle on, on on the kind of manager that Celtic are going to look for here because the, 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 the turmoil at the club is not just in the manager's office. I mean, you've got Peter Lawwell, the long-standing chief executive, is leaving at the end of June. He'll be replaced by Dominic Mackay. Now, Lawwell obviously will have some input to the new manager coming in. He, he might have a lot of input into that, but he might not. It might be Dominic Mackay has a big um, 
a big uh, influence with Dermot Desmond. There's also talk that uh, a director of football or a sporting director will be appointed um, as well because the recruitment basically has been a shambles at, uh, at Celtic for a number of years here. It's been so erratic and so wasteful. So my point is it's it's very difficult to kind of get a handle on, 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 on how this club thinks about where it should go next. You know, you have the kind of high-caliber names, or, or, or in a Scottish context, what seem to be high-caliber names, Eddie Howe, Roberto Martinez, Rafa Benitez. These are the ones that the fans are excited about. To me, they're probably all unrealistic. I, I can't see Roberto Martinez leaving Belgium, even after the Euros for Celtic. I know he's got Scottish connections, but I would be surprised. Eddie Howe, we're not sure. Rafa Benitez, I think, would be too expensive. You know, And then you've got guys like Steve Clark. You've got younger group... Um, People like Frank Lampard has been mentioned. Sean Maloney, the former Celtic player who's uh, the assistant to Martinez. Then, you know, they might look abroad. It's really difficult to get a handle, Hugh, on the club's thinking at the moment because um, there's just such a lack of stability behind the scenes. And my final question was really about what the strategy would be. But again, I think you've answered (laughs) it already. Uh, Will there be money to spend? It's a huge club, Celtic. You know, what sort of prospect is it for a manager coming in? In, in, in some ways, you would say, well, uh, they're, they're, they are in such a, a mess at the moment that um, the only way is up. There's so much room for improvement. I think they need an experienced manager just because of the level of work that's involved this summer. I mean, you're looking looking at at least four or five players definitely leaving because they have a number of loans. They have another, another three or four who are entering the last year of their contract. So to get any money for them, Odson Edward, for example, the striker, uh, these guys will have to be moved on. There's two or three others that have kind of, um, you know, we, we, we're led to believe are looking to get out. So you're talking about perhaps 10 players leaving. Um, and, you know, that's not counting ones that have been signed this season who are just not good enough. So it's a massive overhaul for the new manager to come in. Do they have money? There's about £19 million pounds in the bank in the last um, in the last set of accounts. Uh, you know, season ticket sales are likely to decline because... There's a lot of uh, grievance towards the way the club has been run. I think the fans feel that the board has treated them with contempt, really, by telling them so little. Uh, there was obviously going to be a natural drop-off after the 10-in-a-row season. Even if they'd won it, I think there would have been a drop-off in sales because it's a kind of natural peak. Um, so th- there's money. They're, they're, you know, they're wealthy by, sell- by Scottish standards, but... Um, it all depends on the calibre of manager that they're going to try to attract um, and, and, and how much they're going to be able to promise him in terms of resources, in terms of transfer money. Maybe a big new name would, would help with those ticket sales. And, and obviously the, the fans have been missing for some time as well. Maybe they're eager just to come back and see their team. That might help as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Listen, I mean, you know, there are there's exciting uh, aspects of Celtic. You know, uh, they they could be into the Champions League, or certainly be in the Champions League qualifiers with the potential of a group uh, stage. You know, managers will be attracted by the idea of taking on Steven Gerrard and, and Rangers. Uh, looking further ahead, I mean, I would imagine Gerrard will probably leave Rangers in the next year to 18 months. You know, that, I think that would make, that would be a sensible kind of shelf lifetime for, um, for him to, to move on. So, you know, if you're, a, if you're a manager who backs yourself, you think, well, okay, maybe this is a good time for me to take the Celtic job. But uh, by God, they would have some amount of work to do, the new manager in, in, in the summer. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, they have to absolutely hit the ground running.
So let's assess who the runners and riders are then. Uh, had a quick look at the odds a little bit earlier on. John Kennedy's there, of course, he's in interim charge at the moment. But other names, Eddie Howe, the former Bournemouth boss, the current Scotland manager, Steve Clark. You've got Frank Lampard, ex-Chelsea manager, of course. Roberto Martinez, Rafa Benitez. Um, Henrik Larsson, their former striker, is there as well. And some of the outside names include David Wagner, uh, Roy Keane, Alex Neal, Craig Levine, their former player, Sean Maloney, Thierry Henry, who we've discussed recently on the podcast as well. Uh, Gregor, I'll start with you. Any any name that you think, wow, that person Celtic need to go after? You could think that, but then the reality bites. <laughs> you, know, you know, Rafa Benitez is someone who you'd think, you know, he's he's got... A, track record of success, uh, big figure, and obviously sets up with who's in the in the hot seat in uh, Ibrox, it would set up something pretty tasty. But I don't think he, I personally don't think he, he, he's likely to go. Um, with, re, you know, with my reality, how, and I think Eddie Howe might might think about it. You know, when he's, you're looking at, he was spoken to by Bristol City, apparently, this week, or last week, when uh, before Nigel Pearson was appointed. And he said he's holding out for a Premier League job. I I still can't quite see what what kind of job that's going to be. Um, so I you know I think and and I think he he could be sold the the whole the whole picture of it and the chance to win silverware. He's not going to go to a club in the Premier League where he win silverware. He's not going to go to a club in the Premier League where he can play Champions League football and really awake. This is a huge reset. Like uh, Michael Grant has spoken about it. A new CEO, a new director of football a new manager, a new backroom staff, probably an overhaul of the scouting system and half a new team. And so, you know, some people would think that's a daunting time to come in. It's actually probably a good time to come in. You can really stamp your mark on a, on a team and it's the way it's going to go forward. So those, Eddie Howe, someone, yes. I, you know, I would, I, would, I would love to see Steve Clark get it. But at the same time, if if any if Celtic disrupted the kind of positive vibe <laughs> in Scottish football at the moment, just before the Euros, uh, or even it was kind of set up that he might take the job after the Euros had finished and that kind of leaked out or something, they would be even more hated by the rest of Scottish football than than ever before. So, uh, why do you want Steve Clark in particular? I just you know people people could say we want someone kind of younger and fresh and a kind of progressive coach and Steve Clark is just a really really good manager he's someone who engages the players uh, you see what he's done with Scotland you see what he did with Kilmarnock before that I think his career before at West Brom and Reading was underappreciated. he's a very very good coach and manager and he's someone who I think has a stature to cope with it that's something you need to, that's a one, one question mark about Eddie Howe he's only really had an association with, with Bournemouth he went to Burnley it didn't work going to Celtic is like you know, uh, whatever conversation you want to have about the size of the club, the pressure at that club and at Rangers is unlike anything really in European football. <laughs> you can't you can't lose a game. You can't, you know, Celtic have just had back-to-back trebles and this is the first season uh, of, of, of getting a real failure and it's an absolute, you know, there's people, fans protesting outside the stadium. It's, it's the pressure's enormous. So Steve Clark could cope with that. I think, but I, I don't. I'm not sure it'd be worth it in the current, in the kind of current context, broader context of Scottish football. Um, so it's very, it's very difficult. As I said, the thing when you look at the successful people, when they brought 
when Dermot Desmond brought Martin O'Neill from Leicester, he just finished eighth with Leicester, I think. Um, that was a different era. I think Celtic's wage bill was like fourth in, in Britain. And he was signing players like Henrik Larsson. That, those days are gone. Even when he signed, as I said, when he, when he got Brendan Rodgers, he'd, he'd, had, he'd been, a, been a success at Liverpool, it ended badly, but he had, you know, he, there was he had something, he had already, had already had a connection and and a bit of a career to rehabilitate after the way it ended at Liverpool. So finding those kind of guys, you look at, look out there, it's, they're not really there. So it's difficult, very difficult. Tom Roddy, do you think this job appeals to the likes of Eddie Howe, Frank Lampard, Roberto Martinez or Rafa Benitez? Eddie Howe was the name that, that stood out to me. Um, and I, th- I think it partially because it reminded me of, of a Brendan Rodgers um, going there. And uh, it... it I, I hope it doesn't sound disrespectful, but uh, and I think Celtic fans would have possibly seen it this way. But when Rogers went there, it was a year after being sacked by Liverpool, when that period had sort of he come so close to winning the Premier League title, and it felt like a complete rebuild of his career and an opportunity to 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 do that. And it feels like Eddie Howe needs to do that too and Celtic is a place in which you can do that and uh, Gregor describing the overhaul that's needed I mean how is one of these young up-and-coming not up-and-coming he's we, we know his talent but young managers who still has the traditional mindset in a way because his he has his fingers in everything. They, he is involved in everything that would happen at Bournemouth. So that kind of marries up a little bit. Maybe the idea of, of, of rebuilding something at Celtic while rebuilding his own sort of reputation. And, you know, if you end up, even, even if you don't do what Brendan Rodgers did at Celtic, which is a very, very high bar to hit, but if, if you end up being the success that, that there is the potential to be there, then a, a pr- the Premier League job that he clearly wants can can come from that. What do you think about that then, Gregor? The, the only thing there is that sounds like it's a stepping stone and that wouldn't go down well at all either. It has to be... I agree though. That, yeah, but it is. It is. Was Rogers not seen as a stepping stone Was it when he went there? I, could, I agree that it was seen as a it, an opportunity to rehabilitate his reputation kind of thing. But... He also, as I said, he had the affinity to the club. He had a connection, and he spoke. You know, although you know, we, we Brendan Rodgers can be kind of slagged off a bit for how he, you know, he talks about how special a club it was. He said that on and on, you know, over the years, and then you know, left very swiftly, and <laughs> and the fans didn't appreciate that. So, but he did. He did. He, I don't think he would have come otherwise. Um, Rodgers, Brendan Rodgers would have got another Premier League job. I, you know, he, he was in a different plane to Eddie Howe. Eddie Howe is just a a well-respected coach. And uh, the thing to say is, again, there ha- no matter who goes in, other things have to fall into place. But, as I say, a, new, you know, a director of football, the chief executive, who's uh, Dominic Mackay, the incoming one, he's not coming until the summer. He's, he works for Scottish Rugby. It's, it's, you know, that could be doing with being, with being brought forward because there's a lot of planning that needs to happen now. Uh, so there's a bigger there's a bigger picture, and as I said, the, 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 with the team, the players like Ryan Christie, Callum McGregor, are they surely now what what's left? This is the thing that's been the only thing that's been tying players to the club. 
some of the players love the club. Callum McGregor's been at the club a long time, but the ten in a row was a huge thing, and it was actually slightly unhealthy. I think Scottish football very unhealthy. That once this is gone, what's next? There is a kind of broader question about what should Celtic and Rangers really be like. They're, if they, what should they aspire to be like? They, they're you know we Celtic were a club where you know. Van Dijk, Wanyama, some of these, we were signing these players and they were, it was a stepping stone for them too. So perhaps we need to kind of accept that that is our place in, in British and European football now and do it well. Sign players, give them a platform, you can play in the Champions League and you can go into bigger and better things. And you know, if you do that well, it's like on a smaller scale with, a, with Brentford. <laughs> you do something well over a long enough period of time and you'll get success and you'll move upwards. And that is what Celtic might and Rangers should really have to aspire to be in it, I think. Well, look, you look at the Ajax model, and I know it's even a different sort of size to, to, to Celtic because it's automatic Champions League qualification if you win that league. But they, I think, have accepted their role in terms of managers and players as we'll get great young talents, we'll develop them. When the time is right to sell them, we'll move them on. That's how we make our money. And, and ultimately, that's how we, we are deemed to be a successful club. Um, I, I've seen Sean Dyche mention the Burnley boss, Tom Clark, as well, um, as a potential Celtic manager. I, 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 look, you've all reacted strongly to that, those that can't see you. But my reaction to it was, I think the Celtic manager, whoever comes in, has to bring a style of football. Because I think that that is one of the things that has to be appealing for whatever players come to the club as well. I think you're right. It, whether it's Dyche or not, I'm not sure. But I think... The worst thing Celtic could do to me, looking from the outside, is appoint someone like Thierry Henry or Frank Lampard. You know, go for the big name. Well, they, well, there's lots. I'm, I'm going off the odds list. You know, that's it's either it's either Eddie Howe or it's um, Steve Clark or it's Thierry Henry, and I just think they could be a bit cuter. And you know, we're talking about if you take away that overarching debate that it always comes back to: is it a big club? Could they play in the Premier League? Da 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 da. They've got not a great squad at the minute. You look at, as Greg has alluded to, some of the players that Rodgers had, Moussa Dembele as well, the striker, was a fantastic talent. You know, watching Celtic at times this season, their squad is not as strong as it was under Rodgers. What they need to do is pick a good coach, surely. And if we're talking about um, coaches that have a style of play and that could maybe allow Celtic to be that kind of club, for want of a better term, a feeder club, and I know, Greg, you've said you don't want a young coach, but Steve Cooper at Swansea has done great things in terms of you know, style of play. And, you know, they, they're becoming a team. If you're a Premier League side with talented players you want to send on loan, you're going to send them to his side. So that, that could be a way of you know, raising the talent in the squad and also bringing a style of play. They need a, they need a proper coach to me. So whether it is Sean Dyche, or whether it's someone a bit more flamboyant and attractive like a Steve Cooper. To me, they need a proper coach who's going to bring a lot out of the limited playing squad that they've got in in my book. Um, Michael O'Neill at Stoke is another one who's done good things. Um, and I think he might have been linked with the job before. He's doing good things at Stoke. He's got a good, had a brilliant record with Northern Ireland, of course. I think they could be looking at those kind of managers um, and I would favour someone like that over Eddie Howe because, as, as Gregor says, Eddie Howe has the slight doubt around him of having just managed Bournemouth. The pressure cooker that Gregor underlined, though, I think for some of those names is is my major question mark. Can they deal with that pressure? But there are some some good coaches in England at the moment who I think the Celtic job would still appeal to. 
I mean, Scott Parker might not be one of the people that leaves Fulham anytime soon, but in his short managerial career, he's shown that, that his team can improve. Graham Potter clearly has quality as a coach. He's at Brighton at the moment. I know he's got a long deal. Thomas Frank, if we're going to talk about Brentford, has done great things as well in terms of a style of football. Would that appeal to him? You know, a club where I think he could probably do more if Brentford miss out on the Premier League as well. Tom Clark, what do you think? I think they're all great suggestions. I just wanted to ask Gregor quickly whether, as a, as a fan on the outside, is there an element of the way things have gone and Rangers being so dominant this season... Q, you talk about the pressure for some of those names that we've just talked about, the Steve Coopers to Thomas Franks. Is the pressure a little bit, you know, notched down or does that just not exist at Celtic? Whoever comes in next, is there a bit of that where fans' expectations are lowered a little bit so they'll have a bit more breathing space or does that just, does that just not exist at Celtic? I don't think it does, no. Uh, you know, Steven Gerrard, as much as he's, there was progress seen over the last couple of years, he'd still never won a trophy. That was always the thing. He's not, you know, he's not stopped Celtic winning every trophy. He, he had to do it this year, or he, or he probably would have been on his way out. So, like, there is no, there's no let up. There's going to be some kind of change in atmosphere after the the whole ten in a row thing is is over, and that's good. Because actually, when you look out outside the discomfort of the old firm in the last, you know, Rangers over the last decade or so, <laughs> and Celtic in the last, you know, year, eighteen months, whatever. Scottish football's kind of quite comfortable in its own skin. There's a lot of clubs that have been really well run and developing players and, you know, players are moving on to England and being a success. Uh, it, it, Scottish football's actually in a decent a decent state. There's always a kind of soap opera going on going on around it and that, that happened again uh, during COVID and, you know, Celtic and Rangers are, are always the dominant feature of Scottish football and particularly down here that's the focus it's the only focus you see the old firm come along and we might speak about it or when this happens and it actually surprised me (laughs) when you look at all the kind of sports websites and newspapers and stuff it surprised me a little bit that Celtic were such a kind of prominent feature over the last couple of days I just feel like you kind of realise you you realise that Celtic are no matter what bit the conversation we're having about where they're kind of fitting in in the future in the landscape of British and European football they still are a huge pool huge pool uh, so I don't know Celtic Celtic have just it feels like it's been institutional complacency and it's happened to so many clubs we've seen seen Barcelona you see uh, Man United. So many clubs who've been dominant for such a long period of time, you get complacent and eventually it brings you down. And this is this is what we're seeing at Celtic and it's going to be an enormous, enormous overhaul in the coming, coming six months. Now, to all of our Scottish listeners and Gregor, I can see already that, that you're not going to be happy with this question. Just bear with me for a moment because I actually think that the long-term future of Scottish football could well be those big teams in Scotland coming down into the EFL to start with and then possibly going to the Premier League in a few years' time because I think the EFL is going to try and rearrange itself in the coming years to five leagues of 20 teams. It gives an opportunity for some extra teams to come in. And I actually think because of the extra investment that Scottish teams would bring to the EFL and also would get from being in the English leagues, that could help Scottish football massively. It could help improve academies. It could help improve infrastructure. And look, the long-term landscape of the game is changing anyway with the European Super League. 
you know, and, and I think you need to be where the money is. And Celtic and Rangers and some other clubs in Scotland certainly bring more allure than some of the teams in the National League right now. So I don't think we can imagine a scenario where, for example, the Welsh teams aren't in English football. The likes of Swansea and Cardiff, Newport or Wrexham, they are a big part of English football right now. And it hasn't stopped Wales from going to major tournaments or bringing through some great Welsh players. So I don't really see why Scotland should be so different. I actually think it could be massive for them to, to maybe distribute the money differently. So I'll come to Gregor in a moment for the view of the Scotsman. But firstly, Tom Roddy, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, can, Tom. Yeah, I was going to say, I can, see the, I can see the temptation because, you know, many times we... we talk on on the podcast about how money drives football clubs so I can see the temptation in that side of things but I'd like to think that the idea of reinventing themselves as like you said before you that kind of Ajax model because when you said the Ajax um Ajax's success is building players and 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 then selling them on. It might be, but they don't they don't lose their their success is found elsewhere as well. You know, they still reach the semi-finals of of a Champions League and I think being able to do that would be a, a much better route for a club like Celtic and clubs like Rangers and I would love to see Celtic and Rangers play more but it's that it's it's that identity that they have up there that, that makes Scottish football unique. And I, 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 I wouldn't want to see that, no. These conversations have been had. Dermot Desmond gave an interview not so long ago where he's kind of raising this possibility because Dermot Desmond's the majority shareholder. I just, I just cannot see a world in which English football ever lets Rangers and Celtic in. Because this is the it, truth, Gregor. This is the is, world. This is the this is the world. This is the pandemic. This is the clubs losing tens of millions of pounds. This is wanting new TV deals in the future. How do you get the best possible product? You get Celtic and Rangers in if you're the EFL. I no, mean, this, no, no, no. this is this is the time. It's not like, with all due respect, it's not like letting Cardiff and Swansea in. You're letting in two of, two of the most recognisable names in European football. They, Who are likely. They, to spend four or five years in the EFL before they spend the rest of forever in the Premier League. So why not use this opportunity to have them and, and, and then they they'll be draw, gone? And they would, attract, they would attract investment like the biggest clubs in England do. And eventually exactly. you might have a Scottish team winning the English Premiership. Yeah. Premier League. So Premiership. We, we could have a Welsh team yeah. doing it. We, there's no problem with that. It's not going to happen. They're just not, you know, this is brought up so, so often, so frequently. I don't think the current landscape is going to have any any bearing on whether Celtic Rangers are allowed in. And the other thing is what that does to the rest, rest of Scottish football, the, the, you know, the state that that would leave in. The, the Scottish TV deal is based upon having, having the old firms televising them around the world, uh, largely based upon. Without that, you know, the, the future for, for the rest of the Scottish, Scottish football does not look very good. I still think, though, that if Celtic and Rangers and a few other clubs were in English football, that their TV deal could include money distributed to the other teams in Scotland. So that the money that comes in <coughs> through those clubs doesn't just go to those teams, that, it goes to all of the teams in Scotland. Yeah, football. but that, that, that basically is kind of, is almost like Project Big Picture, where the big guys are drawing on all the wealth, all the money, all the resources, all the TV revenue, and then we're just feeding it out here left, right and centre, down the pyramid and then have some up, up above the border. You can have a bit of money because we've taken Celtic and Rangers. 
I don't, you know, none of that sits easily with me. What's I the long term then, Gregor? You, you've played football and you're a Scotsman. What's the long-term future of Scottish football then? Another thing that's very positive right now in Scottish football is a lot of fan ownership. A lot of clubs. I went up to do a, a piece about Partick Thistle. They, they were very fortunate in that, this is from a journeyman column, in that they, a lottery winner, a national lottery winner, won a fortune. Like, I think it was a Euro millions, loads, hundreds of millions, and bought Partick Thistle and gave it to the fans just before he passed away. And that's so. That's one example of fan ownership. There are, but there are so many. Hearts uh, and Budge, when Hearts went were, were in big trouble, she bought the club, and the fans now have a kind of uh, basically a, a direct debit system where they all pay money into, and they've paid her off over the years. So Hearts will be a fan-owned club. St Mirren are going down a path that way. There's lots of clubs like this. So that's one thing. A kind of connection to the. That's what football kind of used to be a little bit more like. So. That, there's, there's that aspect and as I said for for developing players developing players and you know having having thriving academies selling them on seeing them see them go down to England and thrive like John McGinn uh, who Celtic wouldn't pay three million quid for I should add uh, a little while ago with Brendan Rodgers so that's the future it's it's developing developing players and being a kind of a totem in a community because that's what these clubs are. Celtic Rangers are the big behemoths. The other clubs are, you know, they should be kind of pillars of the community and places where players are developed and, you know, they have thriving academies and a good connection with their, their fans. That's, if, if it's not on the same scale as the rest of, as, as the Premier League or even the Championship, so what? That's what it is at the moment. Well, it's a big argument, which we didn't really have to have today, but I thought I'd bring it up anyway. The more important thing is Celtic need a new manager. It remains to be seen who that person will be. But as Gregor points out, lots of questions to be answered over the coming months at Celtic Park. Up next, we're going to talk about Champions League football, exactly where Celtic want to be. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. And make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times as well across all of your devices. Sign up right now. You'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
So, on to European Competition's elite tournament, the Champions League. The last 16 first legs have been completed and all of the English clubs left are in a comfortable-ish position. Borussia Mönchengladbach nil, Manchester City 2, thanks to goals from Bernardo Silva and Gabriel Jesus last night. On Tuesday, Atletico Madrid's Chelsea won Olivier Giroud with an outrageous overhead kick. And last week, RB Leipzig nil, Liverpool 2, thanks to gifts for Sadio Mane and Mo Salah. Um, Tom Roddy, let's start with Manchester City. Firstly, 19 straight wins for them. Their incredible form continues. Currently rated by the sports analysts as the best team in Europe. They have, though, been beaten quarterfinalists for the past couple of years. Is this season their best chance of lifting the Champions League? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, the only the only thing I do wonder is this idea of of timing, you know, timing your run at the right time. And, and as you said, Hugh, you know, 19 wins in a row is just in absolutely incredible form. And as we've discussed before, doing it pretty much most of it without a striker is, is, is ridiculous. Um, but I, I, I just, I mean, the big thing with City is in Champions League is the idea of kind of capitulating um, at, which tends to happen to them at, at the quarterfinal stage. And I think the fact they brought in Ruben Diaz this season is the big one for them because he's he's been, his impact has been similar to that of Van Dijk to Liverpool because there's just immediately that confidence around him brings the, uh, it just strengthens the defence so much. And that's the element that City have missed for so, for, for ever since Vincent Company left and, and kind of when he was in his prime, that's the element they've missed. And if they are to do it this year, which I do think they've got a huge, huge chance, then Ruben Diaz will be a key reason for it. The way that they play right now, Gregor, Manchester City, you look at the other major competitors for the Champions League, they're defensively, as Tom points out, fantastic. But going forward as well, just the complete control that they have over so many games now, even when they're tight, you see the game against Arsenal at the weekend, City have one on the board and it's almost like, well, game over. Yeah, that was that was almost cruel. <laughs> it was kind of we're kind of toying with them at some stages. Um, yeah, look, we've always seen the dominance, I suppose, but there seems to be a little bit more. I don't know, kind of, as you say, they're able to just turn up, uh, up a notch, slip into a higher gear, um, and play with such pace and kind of, you know, Guardiola has spoken about it, how they they had the conversation about getting back to what they were best at, and we're seeing it now. It's just. It's just remarkable, really, the the consistency and the and the dominance they're having over everyone, and the way that every you know so many players are are playing at their at their prime now. I think at their, their peak, the peak of their abilities, really. Um, we've spoken about Gundogan and Foden. Cancelo has just been remarkable as well, you know, as playing left back uh, last night and still having that that much of an effect on the game. Um, you know. You could, you could say you know from from right back, a full back in Guardiola's team can do that because they can play can almost fill in fill in as an auxiliary midfielder. But when you're doing it, he's a right back. You're doing it as a left back as well, and then playing and then still having that much of a kind of of an impact on the game. Uh, yeah, they're just they're just in in uh, in remarkable form at the moment, and you know it's not going to. Con- 
it never will. It's not going to continue between now and the end of the season kind of without a bump in the road. And if we're talking about looking at the, the bigger picture in in, uh, in the Champions League, Bayern Munich are still the are still the team that are kind of looming large. And you know, as Tom said, there's been moments in the past where City have got to a certain stage and and not quite had that extra bit to kind of whether it's been the mentality or whether it's just been they've not they've not been able to get over that final hurdle. Um, you know, at the moment it looks like they're in a better shape to do so, but it's been a, a recurring theme. And as I say, there's no way that between now and the end of the season we're going to see this this run of of victories continue without any little bump in the road. And Guardiola did say last night um, that with with Bayern Munich still in the competition, they 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 can't be considered as favourites. But and and one of the other things he said which was extremely tongue-in-cheek, was the reason they've been able to do this 19 wins in a row is because of the amount of money they've got, the amount of money they can spend on players. But there is an element of that. I mean, I was thinking about kind of Jack Grealish and the importance of him to Aston Villa, and I know that sounds like a very strange segue, but it, it kind of took me back to Riyad Mahrez in 2016 and talking about him in a similar way with with Leicester. And now, at times, you forget about Mahrez. And, and when you're thinking with City about De Bruyne and then Gundogan comes along and then... He, he doesn't quite, he's not the main guy, but Bernardo Silva last night, and then in the next, for the second leg, it might be Riyad Mahrez. They just have this unbelievable wealth of talent. And with that, with that, even though they are a team, they are a collective and an incredible individuals in a collective, they have those players that when it isn't going the right way can produce moments of, of brilliance. No, I, I I agree. The most the most kind of jarring thing for me at the moment is it is the the power of the collective. You know, we always swoon about Kevin De Bruyne and as Tom said, Maris comes in and scores that that beautiful goal against Everton. Um Foden's been in thrilling form, Gundogan has but it's the team. It's the, the team is functioning beautifully, and we've spoken about how you know the no need to even have a, a, a number nine scoring the goals. That's because the team and the the knowledge of each other's roles in that team has been absolutely magnificent for for City this year. Uh, Tom Clark, he was asked Pep Guardiola at the end of the win over Borussia Mönchengladbach what their success is all about after these nineteen straight wins. Uh, his answer, plain and simple, we have a lot of money to buy incredible players. <laughs> uh, he added to that as well um, that the players have real quality, um, the humanity of his group. The players are fantastic. They have an incredible relationship, but they play every game to think just win that game. Um, they they look like they are a better team in many ways than the Centurions from a couple of seasons ago. What do you think? I think they might be a better team, yeah, overall, the collective, as the guys have just spoken about. I wonder as well whether the, the comment about money to spend might have been a little bit tongue-in-cheek from Pep, because that's always the thing that's banded around when we talk about City. All the top teams spend a lot of money, but they seem to get pegged with it um, far more than others. So I wonder whether that's part of it. I, they've, got, they've got a great chance this season, but speaking of teams and well-organised machines if you like my god Bayern Munich were 
frightening to watch against Lazio. Um, if you want to talk about a team that plays as a collective force, if you like, the pace and the power in that team. I mean, Lazio helped them in lots of ways by the way they played. Uh, was slightly kamikaze defending at times. You, you know, there was a point I think for the third goal was it where it, it looked like the final five minutes of a cup semi-final and they're pouring forward trying to desperately get a goal but my goodness me King Coman Leroy Sane when you've got that kind of pace in your team and added to that players like Goretzka Lewandowski they've got to be favourites by an absolute mile haven't they Bayern Munich so that's not to dismiss City's hopes but I almost feel we can do City a favour by talking them down a little bit this season talk up Bayern Munich and play City off as the underdogs a little bit because that, I mean, that's the final everyone would want to see, I think. I'm not here to help Manchester City in any way, so I'm going to be talking <laughs> them up as, as much as I possibly can, particularly when it comes uh, to the Champions League. But let's move on to another another contender, should we call them that? Something Chelsea could go all the way this year. I'm, I'm currently unconvinced by them. Ten goals in the eight games since Thomas Tuchel has come in. And I don't think this is a competition you can win without a lot of goals in your side, Tom Clark, without a genuine goal scorer in particular. Well, they've got a fantastic striker up front in uh, Olivier Giroud and uh, me and Gregor managed not to fall out when it came to Celtic, but long-term listeners will remember a big fallout between me and Robertson, which I think Tom Roddy witnessed over Olivier Giroud, where Gregor Robertson styles himself as the man of reason on the game podcast. <laughs> came out with the, the wise, the wise old chap came out with the idea that Olivier Giroud was a championship level striker. Well, I think he proved again. I said in another life, he could be, he could have been quite easily. It's yeah, because he yeah, wants yeah. him at Celtic. That's why. <laughs> Without wanting to wind up, Gregor, to come back to your point, you yes, I think you're right, and I think we talk about Bayern Munich and what they've got is goals all over the pitch, and maybe Chelsea don't have that. But I do wonder whether under Tuchel, this slightly pragmatic style he's brought, the, the anti-Frank Lampard, if you like, in terms of tactical vision, whether that might suit a run in the Champions League. You know, I, I didn't expect them to beat Atletico Madrid. You partly wonder whether Simeone's got his eyes focused on making sure they win La Liga this season, currently top of the table, leading the way ahead of, you know, slightly disappointing Real Madrid and Barcelona sides. That might, that might go for them you're right they don't have they're not blessed with lots of goals across the pitch but I think he has to sacrifice that in order to be a bit more solid defensively control midfield I think they were I think they would deserve to win um it's just whether now they can do the same in the second leg and if they get through this tie you've got to say they've got a chance but it will be a very much a I think it'll be a one nil away leg uh, away goals type type Champions League route if they were to get to the final I think that the, the goal was fortunate the way it came to Olivier Giroud. Okay, he did fantastically well to take the opportunity. But Atletico Madrid had some key players missing in that game. To go away from home, a goal down, that is the ideal situation for Diego Simeone and Atletico Madrid to go away from home and need to win as well. I mean, that that's just ideal for them. It's almost set up perfectly for what they've been so good at over the last four or five years. So I still think there's a long way to go in that specific tie. If we've learned anything from Tuchel so far, it's that he can make his side very, very solid and very hard to break down. You know, still early days for his time at Chelsea, but I agree that Atletico will come again almost certainly. But one nil goal lead at home, 
not parking the bus, not anti-football, but you could see them doing a job on Atletico in the second leg. So we'll see. Yeah, I wouldn't rest too much on their defence, but possession-wise, keeping the ball's the best way, I guess, of stopping your opposition. Um, let's move on to Liverpool next. Firstly, condolences to everyone at Liverpool, especially the Becker family. Um, you may or may not have heard the news. At the age of just 57, the father of their goalkeeper, Alisson, uh, has passed away after drowning near his holiday home in Brazil. Very, very, very sad news uh, for Liverpool. And it, I think it puts everything into perspective over their season as well. They they picked up an injury, another injury to Jordan Henderson uh, last weekend as well. Lots, lots of people saying, look, let's just move on from here. Look at next season. Clearly, you know, we're not going to win the Premier League. Maybe the Champions League is there their final opportunity to win a trophy. But if they don't win it after what they've done in the last few seasons, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, Tom Roddy, recently Jamie Carragher, their former defender, was saying that Liverpool don't get um, enough criticism. They should still be better than they are. Where do you stand on that? I disagree, um, if I'm honest. I do, I, I do think, I understand where he's coming from in a way um, because they are in they are in danger of being accused of kind of building towards this moment of of winning the premier league after the the the, the top to flight division after so many years 30 years and then that kind of relief then just ending it and there's 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 this idea in in football um and in and most sports that the real the most successful clubs win something and then move on and progress and Liverpool haven't done that. But I, I struggle to see past kind of the, the, the mitigating circumstances that they've got because you, you, we, we've discussed their injuries before on this podcast, but it, it's difficult to see past them because it, they totally, it totally eradicates their whole team in a way. Um, and, you have they are a team who play a system and when they those injuries have come in and ha- have happened they've suffered them the, the system just t- completely falls apart it's only the attack which has pretty much remained the same they've lost every other element that they had because their defense went their midfield has come back into de- in, as de- stand-in defenders and the rest of it just falls apart i think what you were kind of he was really allu- pointing to is that Despite all of that, they shouldn't be losing at home to Brighton. They shouldn't lose four consecutive home games. That group of players that shouldn't it shouldn't happen. Uh, and he's right, you know. And Alison, crikey, I mean, this is it's an awful thing to happen. And beforehand, he, we'd seen uncharac- uncharacteristic errors from. Him. I think he's saying that there's players who aren't 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 playing at the levels at which we kind of expect from them. And when you just look at the cold hard results, it doesn't it doesn't tally with the players on the pitch for Liverpool. And it, it's not he's basically saying it's not good enough. It's not good enough for Liverpool. And I think he's right. And I, per- I, I said I agree about all the injuries and and whatnot. But they had January to to do something about it to help it, and it, it's not worked. Kabak is so far. I'm you know he's. I hope I hope his his Liverpool career improves, and I hope. He's young and he's been thrown in a very difficult situation, but he's certainly not helped. And Ben Davies has not had an opportunity yet, and he was a, looked like a peculiar signing for Liverpool uh, from the outset. 
they could have they could have done something. So we stopped talking about that, as everyone wants to do. <laughs> you know, you look for new things to say about Liverpool, and everyone just keeps going on about their concentration of injuries in one place. And they had the opportunity to to stop that and to improve their fortunes there. So, and they didn't take it. So as I said, I said recently, I think that's it's the first time really you can look at Liverpool and think they are deserving of criticism. Uh, and I think really that's what that's what Carragher was alluding to. Uh, Tom Clark, they've still got a number of very, very good players. Diogo Jota back in training should return very soon. Do you think they can still win the Champions League? No, you can't win the Champions League with the defensive problems that they've got. I'm wanting to counteract Gregor's point there by going back to talking about the injuries, but they just look a bit confused. I think, I, th- I think I said on the last podcast they were they were okay against Leipzig, um, and they were helped by the way that Leipzig played against them. I, I don't see that. I don't see it a foregone conclusion they get through this tie, even with the first leg lead, because of how poor they've been, particularly at Anfield. The pressure's off Leipzig. You could see them doing something strange and upsetting balance with a three-one win and go through on away goals or something like that. I, I don't think we can factor in Liverpool having a Champions League run this season. No, there you have it. <laughs> Not much to add on that because I don't think any of us. Does anyone still believe in Liverpool? There's a little piece of me that thinks if, if they click going forward, they can still do something special in a, in a, what's essentially a cup competition, but it looks very, very tough. I think you're doing, the Man, United, you're doing the Man United fan reverse psychology there. That, I've heard that before <laughs> from many Man United fans. Yeah, Liverpool will still do it. Ha, 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 ha. They're rubbish. Look, it's one of those things that if someone said to me, do you think a team that has Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino, Mohamed Salah, Diogo Jota... Uh, Gigi Wijnaldum, Fabinho, you know, do you think they can, Thiago, do you think they can have a little run in the Champions League? Yes, but clearly the defence needs to click. They've still got Trent Alexander-Arnold, they've still got Alisson, they've still got um, Andrew Robertson, you know, it's a very strong eight players. The key for them is the two centre-halves, which at the moment um, they, they've just lacked in. But you, ne- you never know, the draw might fall their way if they can get past Leipzig. And by the end of the season, it might be, you know, it's a slightly different picture. But what we've been talking about, you know, with Man City's capitulations in the past, and we haven't discussed PSG either, how good they were against against Barcelona. But their, their biggest issue has always been kind of being top-heavy. And, and defence is so important in this competition. So... I think without pretty much without having one, there's 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 a very slim chance of Liverpool going too far. Okay, and we'll move on from there. I've been beaten resoundingly, and we'll see if the same continues for Liverpool at the weekend as well. Um, Let's move on. Uh, Up next, we're going to talk about fashion faux pas. Still focusing in on the Champions League. I don't know if you guys saw Pep Guardiola's coat. I mean, this is, it was, it was, it was poor. It was bad. Some people were saying it was, it was like um, Alan Partridge's Castrol GTX, you know, jacket, if you remember that. Uh, others like myself saying it reminded me of Danny from Greece. Um, it was a, it was a, it was, it was some sort of a winter coat and it had the Manchester City badge silhouetted <laughs> and it just caught the light perfectly when Pep Guardiola turned around during the game and everyone got to see it in all of its glory. And it was absolutely horrendous. I mean, it was as gaudy and as tacky as you'd expect. Um, a dress coat, basically, with a football badge on the back. Very rarely have I seen anything so, so bad. It's a pity, Hugh. I've just ordered you one. <laughs> <laughs> if it had the Man United badge on the back, then fair enough, I'd wear it. Would you, though? Would you wear <laughs> no. it? That, no, no. That, that I, part I, of my I, thinking, 
I wonder whether Pep's got some kind of deal where he has to wear Man City merch a little bit. I, I, you know, and speaking as someone who owns far too many Lincoln City kits for a 31-year-old man, you know, even I wouldn't wear kind of a trench coat with a Lincoln badge on the back. Even I wouldn't do that. But I think no, but they have got some kind of partnership with his favourite brand, haven't they? I think. I'm trying to think. I, I, I think he's a really, the Manchester can be City quite players. a stylish man. He can be quite a stylish man. He's he can be, be but the Manchester City it. players go off to their away games dressed oh like it's their, it's their first day at school. I mean, it's absolutely horrendous with their little rucksacks on and like black leather school shoes and trousers that seem about two inches too short. I mean, it's a dress shirts. Everyone else is off in their tracksuit and, and they've got caps on and they've got their beats on. And it's just, it's, it's, I don't know what they're trying to do. I don't know who looks on at that and says, quickly find out who supplied the clothes to Manchester City. I need to order myself any of what they wear, to be perfectly frank. But there you go. Um, some company somewhere is paying for that that privilege, by the way. Um, but it made us think about some fashion faux pas in football. We've gone online, we've asked you for some of your suggestions, and some of them are pretty interesting. Uh, the, one of the popular ones is, do you remember that time that all the Manchester United players went out in Manchester and were pictured by the paparazzi wearing, to a man, some of the baggiest boot-cut trousers and jeans that you would have ever have seen? Um, you've got... Paul Scholes in like a cream merino with a black shirt underneath. Gary Neville, who's wearing a leather jacket with a dress blazer over the top of it. Unbelievable scenes. Uh, John O'Shea looking like he's about to release some sort of country album. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think that all of these people, by the way, are millionaires. You've got Alan Smith in the background. Wayne Rooney as well, looking like... It, it, I don't know. It looks like that ad where Wayne Rooney comes out of... Um, do you remember it? Where he comes out of his um, trailer. I can't trailer, remember yeah. what ad that was. Was that a Nike <laughs> advert? I'm not sure what <laughs> it, it was It basically for. looks like that, wearing bad. a vest. I mean, it, 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 it's very poor clobber. Um, Tom Clark, any suggestions? Well, for me, the, the worst fashion faux pas that Pep Guardiola has made is this season with his giant scarves. I don't know whether any of you've noticed those that he wore during the winter months. But and my problem with them isn't so much the scarves themselves. It's that he does that thing that winds me up no end and he leaves the label on. So there's this big kind of black scarf that he's got around his neck and with a big white label dangling off it. It's the same as when you see people out and about with their shoes and they've left the sticker on the bottom of the, on the sole of the shoe and they're wondering about that. That really winds me up. I mean, when we're talking about manager coach, you can't not mention Arsene Wenger and his giant sleeping bag coat, can you? I can't, I can't decide whether that's one of those where it's so bad that it's kind of cool in a way. I mean, it wasn't great for him because he didn't know how to do it up or, you know, uh, get out of it most of the time. But I do, I do think on a broader point as well, footballers and fashion fascinates me because I think increasingly in the modern day game, you see these guys when they're allowed to dress themselves, they've no idea what they're doing. But that's partly because, and I don't know whether Gregor would agree with this or not, you, you've been in an academy from such a young age where you're given tracksuits and whatever, and then you've given football kit, and then if you're going to go to a ward, you're told wear your suit. So you're kind of dressed the whole time. Then you earn millions and millions of pounds, and you get to like 21, and all of a sudden you have to go to an award ceremony and all over social media. And you're like, what do I wear? Oh, okay. I'm going to spend 300 quid on these horrendous ripped jeans and these diamante shirts. I've no idea what I'm doing. So, I mean, and I should also say for listeners as well, Gregor Robertson is, ve for, for all his flaws in football thinking, he's a very, very stylish and well-dressed man. So I'd be interested in whether he, as a former player, whether he's, uh, he was one of the most trendy in the dressing room 
or whether it's just down to his partner's good connections within the fashion industry. <laughs> yeah, probably the latter. No, I think basically what happens, you, you hit the nail on the head, you earn millions and millions, or even if you don't and you're like playing for Nottingham Forest and you earn what you think is a lot of money as a teenager, you go into the gaudiest shop and <laughs> where they kind of, where there's like you know all the big all the big labels and as you say the ripped jeans and everything's like cost stupid money but you think that's what's the coolest and it often in fact almost always is not so that's I think that's probably the thing you got too much money and to to waste and you go into shops where people can uh, are are delighted to take it off you um, so yeah I don't, I, to be fair I was looking through some I think I think. Danny Alves has got to be up there. I interviewed Danny Alves, and he can be quite stylish. I interviewed him once in Paris, and he was looking very cool that day. But do you remember when he? Do you know the other thing: Barcelona players can turn up sometimes. It seems wearing what they want, and he turned up in a red blazer, a white shirt with a dicky bow, shorts, and patent silver shoes, and he's like and like a little hat and sunglasses. And I think. The balls in this guy to turn up to a game <laughs> at the new camp or whatever. And wearing that, part of me actually kind of thought, I'll take my hat off to you. But also I looked <laughs> at it and thought, that's a disgrace. <laughs> Just looking at it now, it's, it's amongst the worst. That's almost so bad, it's almost good. That's what's bad about the pep coat, isn't it? Is that it's a black coat and you think, oh, this guy's just wearing it. Mm, maybe a bit, you know, not quite in trend. And then he turns around and there's a big city emblem on the back. That's... That's what's really naff about the Pep thing. With the Alves thing, if you're going to go for it, just go for it. Go for the dicky bow and the patent and all that. I think that's that's to be applauded in a way. Uh, just just a quick message while we're on the fashion as well. Message to Mikel Arteta and Scott Parker. You're allowed to wear a coat when it's pouring with rain or when it's really freezing. Feel free to do that because I keep watching Match of the Day and my partner keeps remarking on why they keep allowing themselves to get drenched just so everyone can see they're either, you know, polo roll neck and, and, and double-breasted suit jacket. It's absolutely ridiculous. Pep's another one for that. He had that nasty cardigan hoodie thing and it was always pouring with rain. And I was thinking, that you know, that's going to really start to smell. He keeps wearing this cardigan jacket in the rain and it's going to be stinking. <laughs> We've had a couple of good, uh, good examples as well. Martin Allen in his red trousers. Julian Nagelsmann, for me, I mean, he came to the game against Man United in the Champions League earlier this season as if he was about to bring an elephant out in the middle of the circus. It was like, what on earth is he wearing here? It was Honestly, I, I, that was another example of like more money than fashion sense, frankly. Tom Roddy, any suggestions? I agreed with, with you in a way, Hugh, with the, the City players turning up. I mean, I always think that the team, the team brands, I mean, I thought, Gregor, when you were talking about Danny Alves, I remember... It may have even been when Pep was there, and they they had the double denim on. Do you remember that? The double the denim. Really, Pep is the common denominator here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pep style. Unless, you know, sometimes he pulls off and he looks looks all right, but his his influence on the on the team team wear not good. Maybe it's that they 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 can look up they can look um, not as pleasant off the field, and that counteracts what they do on the pitch. <laughs> they they often look like you know when you see twins or triplets who are wearing a. a horrible knitted uh, jumper that's all the same that they the grandma's done it, it looks, looks a little bit like that I think that I don't know whether this is a fashion faux pas or not sometimes I think it's he's quite cool but Gareth Ainsworth wearing the kind of rake, red snake skin boots and the leather jacket at the pitch side at Wembley I I 
flip between thinking, wow, that's cool doing that, and other times thinking, I'd never, I wouldn't be seen wearing red steak skin boots. Is <laughs> any manager that can pull that off? It's it has Gareth to be freezing. Though. And the game's in the in the like better chill of winter where he's just got like a short open necked, fully open neck to the navel. And he fancies himself as a bit of a rock star though, doesn't he? He's quite yeah. hard, I reckon, Gareth. Yeah. I just want to say, I, I, speaking on behalf of sports editors around the country, I think if, if I could make a plea, it would be that actually we actually embrace this idea of team uniform and that managers move away from the giant black coat because when it comes to uh, designing football articles and all your options for pitchers are managers in black coat, black cap, Jurgen Klopp is a nightmare for it, particularly when he's got his face mask on in the current current guys, and you set against a dark background, you can't, you know, people don't stand out, you can't tell who they are. So I'd be all aboard managers having kind of color colorized, stylized coats and outfits for on the touchline. It just makes things a bit jazzier, you know, make, bring things to life a little bit more. No, I just say if you're the uh, kit man or you provide whatever clothes the manager needs to wear, long coat, dark in colour, initials, club badge, that's it. Move on, frankly. That's all we need to see. Nothing else. No special shoes, trousers, socks, whatever. Uh, Listen, guys, thanks for being with me for the past hour or so. Uh, Tom Clark, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson, appreciate it. Thank you to everyone for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times right now. You'll get it across all of your devices Go online, check out thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. We will see you on Monday. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.